Psalm 8, for the director of music, according to Gittith, a psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, uh, what a great psalm that we have before us this morning. Uh, it's, in a, it's a bit of contrast, though, I reckon, uh, to... A feature of the society we live in, uh, it seems to me we live in a pretty cynical age, right? We're a bit of a cynical bunch. Uh, we can be pretty sarcastic and suspicious and it sort of comes pretty easily to us. And that's why it's so great when you see someone who is unexpectedly um, interrupted by a sense of awe or wonder or something like that, uh, overcome with this sense of wonder. Uh, kids seem to be much better at this than grown-ups. Um, I had this distinct memory um, from when one of my kids was a toddler, taking them for a walk around the block. Uh, and, uh, uh, and to my mind, if I'm going for a walk, I'm going for a walk, right? That's, you, know, you, you sort of have a start and an end point, and you begin at the beginning, and you continue going on until you get to the end. That's, that's how walks work for me. But I soon had to learn that that's not at all what's going on for a one-year-old toddler, Everything is amazing. Everything. Um, I remember one moment, if you put the picture up on the screen, uh, I remember one moment I, um, you know, I was doing my, I was going for a walk, uh, and then uh, uh, my, my one-year-old uh, was uh, sort of fallen behind me, um, and I realised what they were, all they were doing was looking in wonder and awe at this leaf falling down off of a tree. Um, nothing for them was more amazing in the world at that moment than this leaf falling down from the tree. Total focus on something that I would just walk past, step on, ignore without a second thought. Our kids seem to be really, uh, it comes a bit more naturally to them, this sense of wonder, of awe. Well, Psalm 8 is a song of wonder. It's a song of awe. Uh, it's written uh, by David, the great king of Israel, uh, and he has this moment where he just gets blown away. He gets overwhelmed with wonder, with uh, awe with, that leads to praise, to worship the Lord his God. It is a wonderful psalm. Uh, and ultimately, as we'll see, uh, it's a psalm that points us to Jesus in this really rich way. Um, that's what we're trying to do in this whole series that we're kind of uh, popping up again, uh, now and again over this term, this series through the Psalms. That's what we're trying to do. Um, uh, we're seeing how the Psalms lead us to Jesus. 
uh, how we read them, how we sing them, how we reflect on them, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus. And so that through them, as the Apostle Paul writes, that through them the word of Christ would dwell richly among us. That's our deep goal for the whole series, that the word of Christ would dwell not just up here, but would dwell richly within us as a church family. That's our prayer. Um, before we get into the psalm, though, Psalm 8 does this in a, in a way that's a little different from the last two psalms that we've looked at. If you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalms 3 and 4. In those psalms, uh, it's the character of David that is really a straight line to Jesus, that points straight to Jesus, uh, the king who suffers, the king who grieves over the sin of his people. Uh, that was a few weeks ago. And the next few psalms, if you're keeping reading through, the next few psalms are pretty similar to that, um, 5, 6, 7. Uh, they're, they're, they're a little bit similar to that. But the connections to Jesus here in Psalm 8 are just a little different to those psalms. It's not so much David in Psalm 8 that points us to Jesus. It's more the, the realities that David is talking about. Um, but we do have a bit of help uh, from the New Testament here, and we'll get to that later in the sermon. Uh, so we'll see how that all works as we go through. But into the psalm. Um, one of the things you'll notice about this psalm uh, is the way that it starts and ends with exactly the same words. Do you notice that as we read through? Begins and ends with the same words. Uh, verse 1, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, this is a song to the Lord. You can see Lord there in capital letters, uh, the very first word. In our English Bibles, that's a way of writing the personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, we sung a song with that uh, uh, to begin with. The, the one true God who made all things and who chose Israel to be his special people, through whom he would give his blessing to the whole world. And David calls this God, Yahweh, he calls him our Lord, our master, our ruler, our sovereign, the one who reigns, but he, he, he reigns not just over one little patch or one tribe, the one who reigns over all the earth. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm begins and ends with the majesty of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God. And friends, that's, that's really important for us to hear that before we get into the rest of the psalm. It's really important. You won't be able to sing this psalm properly if you have a small view of God. Uh, it can be easy for us to have that. Uh, it's, it can be easy to view God as a kind of cosmic personal assistant, someone we invite into our lives when it's convenient for us, uh, someone who's there to help us out with our problems, uh, he's uh, someone to give us a little bit of inspiration so that we can achieve our life goals. But do you see how David's view of God is totally different to that? And this is just going to get bigger and bigger as we go through the psalm. God isn't David's PA. Uh, God is the unrivaled Lord of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth. And David begins and ends this psalm with bowing his heart in humble worship before that God, praising his awesome majesty. 
That's how he frames everything. It puts a lot of things into perspective, doesn't it, if that's how you see God? And what that does for David here is it sets the scene for the rest of the psalm. Um, The rest of the psalm goes on and it kind of rests on these series of contrasts between this awesome God, uh, 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 these unexpected realities that David sees in the light of how great God is. Um, So he looks up at the night sky and he goes on in verse 1. Uh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Um, There's another psalm, Psalm 19, where David writes that the heavens declare the glory of God. God has set his glory there. And so we're meant to look up at the heavens, at the night sky, and we're meant to see there the glory, the majesty the awesome power of God. But here's where these, these kind of contrasts, these unexpected realities kick in. If this is true about God, if this is true about the awesome God who created all things, it's a bit of a surprise to find that there are people who oppose him, right? Uh, who set themselves up against him. But that's exactly what you see here as you keep reading. He has enemies. He has foes. There are Avengers, not superhero types, but vengeful people uh, who raise themselves up against him. But the real surprise actually comes with how God, how God reacts to all of this. So, uh, how would you expect God to uh, react? How would you expect God to act towards his enemies? From a human perspective, uh, I'd probably think, well, you, you smite them, right? That's, what, that's something that a, a god would do, smite them with extreme force. But what does David see? If you keep reading on, it's through the praise of children and infants that the Lord establishes a stronghold against these enemies, that he silences them. Um, there's something very strange going on there, right? David pictures the weakest, most humble, powerless people, children and infants. And he says they're the ones who this God will use to win his battles. Uh, how that all works out isn't really answered here. It doesn't go into detail here, but you can get a sense for what David's saying, right? And it, and it kind of it lines up with a theme that runs all through the Bible. God uses the unexpected. He uses the small, the weak. He uses the nobodies in the world to accomplish his incredible eternal purposes. He did that all through the Old Testament. Uh, he works through these people who weren't strong, who weren't impressive. He works through the younger, weaker son, He works through the unwanted woman. He works through the small and weak nation of Israel. And what we'll see as we finish up later on is that the ultimate way that this pattern gets fulfilled is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in God defeating his enemies, his great enemies of sin and the devil and death through the one who came as a squawking baby uh, and who died uh, a, a terrible death on the cross. 
Um, but David sees this way that God works. He catches a glimpse of this way that God works in the world, and it causes him, like it just, it causes him to have this sense of awe and wonder. And he sings, "O Yahweh, our ruler, O Lord, our Lord, how glorious, how majestic is your name over all the earth." But he goes on, and uh, in verse three and four, he looks back up to the heavens. Um, if you know anything about David's story, you know before he was king, he was the shepherd boy, so he would have had plenty of time out in the fields looking up at the stars at night. And everything he sees, the moon and the stars, he calls them, do you notice what he calls them? And verse 3, the, the work of God's fingers. Um, he, he has set them in place. It's kind of like we're getting ready for Christmas. I don't know if anyone's, has anyone put up their Christmas tree yet? No, not quite. I think it's 1st of December you're supposed to, or I don't know. We, we'll get our, ours up on Christmas Eve probably, you know, terrible rush. Uh, but... Uh, it's a little bit like God's kind of placing the baubles on the tree. You know, that's, that's the image you get. He's, he's said all these things. They're just the work of his fingers. Um, look at this incredible... Um, if you go to the picture that we've got up uh, about... There we go. Imagine that's David looking up at the night sky. Uh, David, now, David didn't know everything that we know about the size of the universe, but he knew enough to feel very small, very insignificant, and to be in awe of the one who made them. And how much more for us, right? Um, Okay, I've got this ball here. Imagine this is the sun. Okay, this is the scale we're talking about. If if the sun is this size, the earth is a a speck of um, a grain of sand about six metres away. So where's six metres away? I don't know, somewhere up the back there. So there's a grain of sand up there. Uh, going around the sun. Our solar system, let me get this right, would extend out about 230 metres from the ball. So just imagine the whole school here is sort of our solar system and that at this scale. At this scale, the nearest star from us, from, from here, the nearest star from us would be 1,500 kilometres away. So go to Sydney and then keep going a few hundred kilometres more the nearest star from us. But it gets even more amazing. Uh, In our Milky Way galaxy, there's estimated that there's over 100 billion stars. And our galaxy is just one of billions of others. Uh, The the figures, the distances, the numbers are so huge, it's sort of difficult to get your head around, right? Um, For the... For the secular atheists, though, all of this is just evidence of our cosmic insignificance. There's a quote up on the screen by um, uh, famous atheist uh, Stephen Hawking. Uh, He said this, The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one of among 100 billion galaxies. See what he's saying there? Um... (laughs) <laughs> you're just a, a piece of chemical scum. <laughs> uh, but do you see how different it is for David in this psalm, how different it is, it is for everyone who knows Yahweh. Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have set in place. It's just the work of God's fingers. He didn't even need to put his shoulder into it. (laughs) Uh, But the picture here is actually of an an artist at work. Um, The universe in all its vastness is like God's canvas. It's the expression of his design, his artistic flair, his matchless creativity. And that's, that's amazing, right? That's good. But it's not actually what gets David going here. What really knocks him over is not just that the universe is God's canvas. It's the realization that in all of this vast work of art, God gives special care to one tiny part of it. Verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. This one who is utterly sovereign, whose glory is set above the heavens. That one is mindful of you. You are not chemical scum to him. He cares for you. He, he thinks about you. It's no wonder that David is in awe, right? Um, there's lots of talk in our society today about self-esteem. Um, it's one of the ways I think we respond to really scary rates of depression and anxiety and suicide. Um, to say that you need to esteem yourself, to know how great you are, how awesome you are. You need to believe in yourself. Uh, We run into problems, though, when we realize the reality that we're not perfect. We we stuff things up every day, and we're pretty ordinary, all things considered. But can you see how much better, actually, how much more liberating this psalm is? It's not trying to boost your self-esteem. It's much better than that. Psalm 8 isn't about self-esteem, it is about God's esteem of you. It's a psalm that points us, it points us to the only one who is perfect. The only one who is awesome. More awesome than you could possibly begin to imagine. And yet, at the same time, the one who loves, who cares for, who thinks about you. The message here is not believe in yourself, it's believe in him. Believe, believe in him and believe him. Believe what he says here to you in his word. And that's how we can share David's awe. Uh, what is mankind? What am I? That you are mindful of me, a frail human being that you care for me. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name over all the earth. I mean, that's amazing, right? But, but even that, even that is not the ultimate reason for David's awe, his wonder. Verse 5, he goes on. You have made them a little lower than the angels. He's talking about this chemical scum, right? Human beings. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, And the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths in the seas. 
So David just lets go here, right? And you see um, what, it's, what really draws him in wonder. It's not just that this awesome God cares for humans. It's that he gives them this incredible position. He has crowned them with glory and honor. It's this sort of kingly, royal imagery. If you crown someone, you entrust them with a huge responsibility. And that's what the psalm is saying that God has done for us. He, he has made humans to be rulers over the whole creation, over the whole world, accountable to him under his ultimate rule. There's so much here that, to go into, isn't there? And the, the, the implications of this are huge. And... Um, Paul drew them out, many, many of them last week, when we looked at the image of God in Genesis 1. Um, uh, so I'm not going to go into detail, but I'll just skim through a few of them to sort of rejog some of your memory on some of these things. It has implications for how we care and relate to God's creation. Uh, how we see our God-given responsibility to rule this world in ways that honour him. And recognize that he is the one who, this is his, art, his, his, his artwork. Uh, and we are under him. Uh, it has implications for how we understand the value and dignity of all human life. Especially the most vulnerable. The people who society does, would, would not think is valuable. Um, all human life. It has implications for how we see trends. How we kind of relate to trends in our culture. Um, there's a, it seems to me there's a strong cultural current at the moment that uh, sees ourselves as our own creators, our own sort of gods, our own lords. We can be whatever we want to be. But do you see the picture of humanity is totally different here? Your life is not yours to make of it whatever you want. Your life is a gift from God, given with incredible dignity and incredible responsibilities. Life is a gift to be humbly received, not grasped at and manipulated however you want. Humbly received, recognizing that it comes from the sovereign God of the universe who cares for you. We could go on. There's lots more um, that flows out of this psalm, that flows out of Genesis 1 and 2. And we've just sort of had, um, you know, been sparked to think through that. Uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, but ultimately, those implications of what's going on here aren't actually the main thrust of this psalm. One writer put it uh, that what's happening in Psalm 8 is uh, David is putting Genesis 1 into a song. And um, There's so much that flows out of the realities of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, um, but what's going on here is, well, the primary purpose of David singing, writing down, giving us this psalm is not information, it's adoration, it's praise, it's wonder at this God. It takes the realities of Genesis 1 and it redirects them back to God in worship. But friends, this I, I feel like a, a television salesman. But wait, there's more. You know, there's there's even more going on. There's there's still more in this psalm. 
You see, Psalm 8 is not just Genesis 1 put to music. It is that. It's also a song of longing, a song that it looks backwards, but it also is a song that points forwards. Um, because as great as the image of humanity here is in the psalm, it, in the background, as David writes this, in the background is the reality, the fact that no one actually lives up to it. No one actually lives up to this psalm, this position of glory and honour, this crowning as rulers over creation. The, the reason for that is because Genesis 1 is soon followed by Genesis 3. Um, Psalm 8 pictures what we were created for, but in our sin, in our rejection of God, humanity fell from that. So Psalm 8 leaves us with the question, where is this human being? (laughs) Where is this ruler? Which, it's a question that leads us straight to Jesus. Leads us straight to Jesus. Psalm 8 is ultimately a psalm about Jesus Christ. And one of the best places in the New Testament to see this is in the book of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews, the early chapters of Hebrews, are all about how awesome Jesus is. Uh, And then in chapter 2, he quotes Psalm 8, uh, talking about um, humans and how God put everything under their feet in creation. Psalm uh, Chapter 2 in Hebrews, 2 verse 8, says this, should be on the screen. Um, in putting everything under them, that is in under humanity, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So God intended um, this rule over the world to be sort of complete under his rule. But it goes on, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. We don't see it. We don't see it. And I mean, rulers over everything, I can't even rule over my veggie patch, you know? Uh, but it goes, it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? Ever since the fall, our relationship with the world, our relationships with each other have been marked by conflict, by selfishness, Ultimately, they've been marked by death. More, more, by, more by those things than by the, the image of dignity and purpose that you get in Psalm 8. So we, we don't see humanity ruling like we were created to. But the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see what's going on here? Um, In his creation in Genesis 1 and 2, God unexpectedly raised up humanity to this place of dignity and honour, a little lower than the angels. And... As the story goes, we we fell from that. We tragically fell from that in our sin. But God didn't leave us there. That's what he did in his creation, unexpectedly raised up humanity. In his salvation, in the gospel, God unexpectedly made himself low in Jesus. Lower than the angels. For us, that was a a huge elevation for him. It 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 was coming down. 
lower than the angels, entering into our human condition in order to save us. Uh, later in Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus did this. He, he shared our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus is pictured here as a new Adam, uh, the beginning of a whole new human family. He restores humanity to what it was always meant to be. He reclaims all that the first Adam lost. And now through his resurrection, Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honour. There's a final twist though. Really, um, this is the last one. One more unexpected grace from God in all of this is that Jesus takes his people with him. Uh, everyone who's united to him by faith will, shares in his crown. He doesn't just restore us to Genesis 1, he takes us further. He, he perfects humanity so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6 that Jesus' people will judge the world, will even judge angels with him. Well, there's lots there, isn't there? Um, the way in which this opens up to us the glory of Christ and the wonder of what it means for us to be in him. Might be here, uh, you might be here, friends, and um, you, you're not a Christian, you, you're not a believer, you're sort of checking things out. You haven't yet um, put your faith in Jesus. Our great desire for you is that you would become a Christian, that you would, you would hear this, the good news about Jesus and that you would put your trust in him as your saviour and as your Lord. And friends, what this psalm says to you is that in becoming a Christian, you're not going to be missing out on anything. Um, it, don't hear me wrong there. Becoming a Christian is going to involve sacrifice and hardship. It can be a hard road, road but ultimately, putting your faith in Jesus means joining yourself to the one who has lived the most fullest, the most perfect life that's ever been lived, and the one who now reigns in glory and honour, and who by his spirit is going to bit by bit shape you so that you can share in his life, uh, both now and into eternity. In other words, what I'm trying to say is becoming a Christian means by, God, by God's grace becoming... Not, it's not missing out, it's actually becoming who you were created to be. Who you are always meant to be. Uh, but this psalm has lots for all of us though, doesn't it? How long has it since you've been surprised? Um, how long has it since you've kind of let your guard down and felt a little bit of awe and wonder? Um, this psalm invites us into a, a view of the world that has an endless capacity to reignite, no matter how sort of how dull the fires have gone. This psalm has the an endless capacity to reignite that kind of wonder. We are such weak, weak creatures, aren't we? We naturally go through lots of ups and downs, but there's one constant reality here in this psalm. Through Jesus, 
the utterly glorious and sovereign creator of the universe, is mindful of you. He cares for you. He esteems you. And he crowns you with glory and honour. And you can know that this is true, unshakably true. You can know that because of the unexpected but sure stronghold of the cross of Christ, of Jesus' death and resurrection for you. Uh, in a moment, we're going to sing a song that's a paraphrase of this psalm. Um, well-known psalm, a song to many of us. Uh, and friends, it seems to me that there's really no better way for you to respond, actually, than to lift your eyes to this God and sing your praise to him um, for, both, for both his glory in creation, but as the song's going to point out, for his even greater glory in his salvation in his glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we sing, though, I'll pray. Can we pray together? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our God, we praise you as the one who wins your victories through unexpected means, who even uses weak and frail people. We thank you, our Father, for your great victory in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for everything that that means. We, we praise you and we thank you that you, the one who made all things, cares for us and is mindful of us. Lord, I pray for any of us today. I pray for those of us who perhaps... Um, have a proud heart towards you, that you might bring us low in the light of your majesty. I pray for those of us who um, are perhaps in despair or depression, that you would remind us of your great care for us and the reality of that through Jesus. Lord, um, you have given humanity a great calling. We ask for your help in, through Christ, exercising that. Most of all, Lord, we ask that you might, for all of us, just lift our eyes again today to the awesome wonder of the gospel. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.